Hey guys, you're listening to episode 63 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're talking to Jared Nelms, CEO of the Timothy Initiative. Welcome to the show. My name is Keelan, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. Today, we're talking to Jared Nelms, CEO of the Timothy Initiative. Jared began his career on the mission field, where God showed him the power of fueling indigenous leaders to reach their own people. Today, that's the primary strategy of TTI. Jared and TTI are also an important part of the Coalition of the Willing, a growing collection of ministries that have torn down many traditional barriers to collaborate and share information in order to reach every person everywhere with the gospel. Stay tuned to hear all he had to share. Before we get started, do you ever wish you could find more people who are passionate about generosity, serving their communities, and advancing the gospel? Do you wish you could interact with some of our fantastic podcast guests? Well, we have a growing community on Facebook and LinkedIn where you can do just that. You don't need to have a financial finish line to join. All you need is a passion for glorifying Christ with whatever God has given you to manage. Look for the link in our show notes to learn more. And with that, let's get to our interview. All right, here we are with Jared Nelms, the CEO of the Timothy Initiative. We first heard about the Timothy Initiative back in episode 20 with David Johnson from Dulas Partners and more recently on episode 51 with Bekele Shanko. Jared, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Hey, my pleasure. Happy to be here. So why don't you get us started off just telling us a little bit about your personal story and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so Amber and I moved to South Asia, fresh out of seminary, felt called into missions and actually wanted to be a missionary to Africa and ended up in Asia and really saw God do some incredible things. Learned a lot along the way and came out of a church where my dad was a pastor Grew up as a PK, as they're known, with a bit of a rebellious streak, but God got a hold of my heart on a trip one time to the country of Zambia when I was in college and really changed the trajectory of my life and saw God do some incredible things and felt called into missions and haven't turned back since then. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about your experience in Zambia? Yeah, it's an awesome story. I love telling it. I was actually not really walking with the Lord at the time, but kind of open and exploring. And before that trip, I kind of wrote in a journal that I had that, God, if you're real, show me something, please. I was struggling with my faith. And we were out in the bush. We had recruited a bunch of people, a few hundred people, to show the Jesus film one evening. So a lot of people gathered huddled around little fires. It was cold. And the team that I was with, it was a group of young adults, mostly college-age people, got everything ready and went to hit play on the projector of the Jesus film. And technology wouldn't work. The guys on the projector were scrambling around trying to figure it out. And the team I was with said, guys, we got to pray. And I kind of Internally rolled my eyes, thinking, oh boy. So the team was deep in prayer, and I was kind of just looking around, taking in 
the scene and wondering what was happening. And eventually the guys at the projector had got the audio of the Jesus film to work, but not the video. And they made an announcement saying, hey, we're going to play it so you can listen to the story, but we're not able to show the video tonight. There was disappointment in the crowd, but most of them hung back. And the team continued to pray, and the guys at the projector sat down. And I was watching as the last person in our group praying said amen. The video shot up on the screen of the projector. (laughs) The crowd went crazy. I was watching it all take place. No one was at the projector. And I heard not an audible voice, but in my heart, I heard God saying, I'm real and I'm calling you. That changed my life. Came back, went to seminary and have wanted to be a missionary and involved in getting the gospel to every people in every place ever since. So where did life take you from there? So the day of my graduation, I was a Florida State Seminole. Hopefully some fans out there go Knowles. <laughs> The day of my graduation, I drove up to seminary, skipped walking, skipped the graduation ceremony, and did an intensive on the miracles of Christ. And as soon as I graduated seminary, along the way, found an opportunity to go overseas and moved overseas when I was about 23 years old. So been going at it ever since. Jerry, can you share about the Timothy Initiative, how it was founded, what led up to that moment where you decided that that was the direction that you wanted to go? Yeah. So the Timothy Initiative, you can just say TTI if you want. It's much simpler. Initiative is a tough word in the English language (laughs) for most people. So it really comes out of 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, where Paul is writing to Timothy and just challenging him in a discipleship relationship that the things that you saw and heard from me, how you saw me live, how you saw me teach, I'm entrusting that to you, Timothy, not just for you, but to do the same with faithful men and others, and that they can do it with others also. So you kind of have four generations of discipleship in that verse. So that's where the Timothy Initiative name comes from. How we originated was actually out of a church where my dad was a pastor. And long story short, he had a burden and a passion to train pastors around the world. Overwhelmingly, the majority of pastors in the majority world have little to no formal theological training. Most of them, best case, are going to have a New Testament. If they're lucky, they'll have an Old Testament. Very few Bible training type materials in their local language. So really, it was founded just as a ministry out of a local church down in Florida. And the goal was for that church to train 7,000 pastors and plant 7,000 churches. So I got a call one day saying, hey, would you go over to Asia for a few years and help get this project It's a three-year project, and then you can go off to Africa where you can be a missionary. I saw it as a great opportunity to kind of get my hands dirty and get my feet on the ground and, and get some practical ministry experience, thinking eventually I would move to Africa to be a long-term missionary. And God really 
opened my eyes to the indigenous church around the world and national leaders who had a heart, who had a vision, who had a calling and effectiveness to reach their people for Christ. So along the way, after about a year or two, it became clear to me that investing in trying to mobilize the indigenous church around the world would be kind of the best strategy for our efforts and for our ministry in the church. And as the ministry grew, it became too large for one church to handle. So we kind of branched out and became the Timothy Initiative. Yeah, so many of the guests and ministries that we've talked to have brought up that concept of raising up indigenous missionaries, of really empowering people to reach their own people. And from people who are new to that concept, sometimes there's a hesitation there. Can you explain a little bit more about really the power of that strategy and why that's so effective and why really kind of on an international level that has become one of the more dominant mission strategies in this age? Yeah, so I think probably the biggest learning curve for me was from my experience and what I've seen and heard from others is a lot of times young missionaries feel called and they want to go to a place without knowing anybody, without understanding the culture, without understanding the language, and they want to go in with a plan and a strategy. And luckily for me, I had no plan. I had no strategy. I was connected with some strong local indigenous leaders. I knew I felt called to missions, but I didn't know what that meant. And I was able to go to a place where there were really effective national level leaders who were highly trained, had a strong calling on their life, and were actively engaged in disciple making and church planting. And I was able to listen and learn from them and see that they're not necessarily lacking in strategy. They're not lacking in calling. They want to see the gospel saturate their nation. I heard so many times indigenous leaders say, we want to see a church in every village in our nation. And that's the calling that God placed on their heart. And they were local. They knew the local language. They knew the local culture and the customs and the people, and they had the networks. So it became very clear to me a wise investment and the unique value proposition I could bring to the kingdom was getting behind them and mobilizing their efforts, adding fuel to their fire as opposed to trying to figure out what I was going to do. So that may not be the calling for everybody, but I have seen when you can get behind strong local leaders, you can maximize the kingdom impact so much more quickly than if you're trying to do it on your own from scratch. And part of TTI's strategy involves church multiplication, which is raising up churches, not just planting churches, but raising them up, discipling them to go out and plant more churches themselves. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Jesus had one strategy He's going to build his church, and he told us to go make disciples. So I think in every country in the world, there is some level of indigenous church. 
there's the gospel has made it to the ends of the earth, not necessarily to all the peoples and places, but at least to the geographic nations and countries. And I think we do three things that we really focus on and all of them happen in the context of the local church. So that's really the strategy that Jesus had. And he has called each one of us to be disciples and make disciples. And when that happens with intentionality, it is very natural for the church to grow, for the church to expand, and for the church to be formed in new places as new disciples gather together. And if you can do that with some level of intentionality, and you develop leaders in the context of the local church, you can mobilize and multiply the church very quickly. And if you're not constrained to paying salaries of individual church planters, but if you can train just average people to be disciples and make disciples, if you can train them to effectively study the scriptures, to communicate the scriptures, and train others to do the same, you can really see a quick multiplication of the body of Christ. You can see leaders emerging and being developed very intentionally and very quickly. And that's really how you get the gospel, we feel, to every people in every place. Yeah, I mean, it makes so much sense when you lay it out like that. What strategies have you guys tried over the years to help that fueling process and that empowerment process And what have you learned along the way that has kind of shaped what your strategy looks like now? Yeah. So unfortunately, we didn't get the plan from the mountaintop like Moses. (laughs) That would have been much easier. But we've tried to be intentional in our learning process. So we've tried to learn from all of the best practices in the movement world, if you will. So we've learned from a lot of different individuals, a lot of different groups, a lot of different ministries, a lot of different movements, what seems to work and what seems not to work. And we've tried to put what we call organic intentionality into a process that can be replicated in the field. So we believe in a lot of the church planting, disciple-making movement principles in terms of obedience-based discipleship and training is for trainers, not just for learners, abundant gospel sowing, a lot of the basic principles, things like four fields and discovery Bible study. But we've also coupled intentional Bible training with that. So we've developed materials that are in 40 or 50 different languages, I think, today, where You train disciple makers not just on strategies and techniques, but you also train them through the Word of God. And as they're studying the Scripture, they're held accountable to put those things into practice in their own life. And then they're also held accountable to train others to do the same. So I think we've probably not created anything originally. We're just good imitators and synthesizers of what we learn from other people and what we learn from scripture and what we learn from our experiences. And we try to package that into a process that helps take an average brand new believer into somebody who can share their faith with confidence to somebody who can train someone 
through the Word of God, someone who can communicate Scripture well, who can interpret Scripture, and then ultimately train others to be able to do the same thing with other people. And that's really the secret sauce, if you will. The key to reaching the world is not through trained missionaries and professionals, as much as that pains me. It's through the average Joe and Sue and any other local person. That's how you're going to reach the world is through the average person being a disciple that makes disciples. At least that's what we think. I'd love to hear more about that specific process of training someone to share the way that God has worked in their lives. I'm thinking about when I got baptized for a few years, I kept thinking, I don't know what my story is going to look like. It was always a future thing that I thought, I can't wait to see how God will use me. And as every year passes, there's more to tell and there's a richer testimony to share. And I feel more emboldened to share. But for someone who's maybe a newer believer, especially with a variety of different cultures that you're encountering, how would you build someone up to the point where they can actively share their faith, even if it is a relatively young faith? Yeah. Well, every context is different. The majority of the places that we work are in what's known as the unreached world. So you're dealing with Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, animists, people that have origins of faith that are drastically different than maybe we have in the States. So they've grown up in a context that's largely fear and power based in honor, shame type cultures where you're either scared or you don't want to bring shame to the family to go outside of the beliefs that you're brought up in. But probably the most powerful testimony is the transformation of death to life. And the blind people don't know the three-point sermon of how to share their faith, but they do know, I was blind and now I see. And I would say for most people, whether you have a dramatic transformational testimony or you grew up in the church and somehow when you were in college or you're 35 or you're 50 years old, you gave your life to Christ, there is a dramatic transformational thing that happens in our heart. We're going from death to life. And though you may not have what you feel is a great story, the Bible would say otherwise in terms of what happens in heaven when one person comes to Christ. So I think what we focus on is if you're coming from a background of non-Christian, it's very easy to tell people, this is the experience that I had. A lot of the experiences come through healings, through some level of a power encounter where someone is demon-possessed or someone is sick or someone is bleeding or someone has an illness. They encounter Jesus and they're healed. That's a very easy story for them to tell. For those who don't have a power encounter, if you will, but give their life to Christ, I think the easiest thing to do is to point to the transformation that's taking place in their heart. So we train kind of three things with our brand new believers, what their life was like before they met Christ, how they met Christ, and then what's the change? What's the impact? What's the transformation? 
And regardless of your context, the people that are in your life, they know who you are. They know how you are. And when you meet Jesus, they're going to see something different. And that's the thing we train people to point towards. And it's really difficult for the outsiders looking in to argue with the personal transformation. So that's what we point to. As they grow, we also point to how to share the gospel through the story of Jesus and other techniques. But that's the main thing. Begin with their own life. Do any specific stories stand out to you? I know you've probably experienced and heard many, many stories, but are there any that come to mind that were particularly impactful for you? Yeah, there's so many. I think one that's especially powerful to me is because it came in a time where I was a bit down and discouraged. There was a guy, I forget how to pronounce his name, Appel, I think is the actual name, some guy in French-speaking Africa, and his story came across my desk one day, and long story short, he had grown up in the church. He had not really been engaged in making disciples. He kind of had fire insurance, if you will. He knew he was saved. He prayed a prayer, but really not engaged in the Great Commission, not engaged in his primary calling, which is to be a disciple that makes disciples. And he felt he was going through the training and he felt convicted that he really wasn't engaged in sharing the gospel. And he actually worked in a prison and he thought, what can I possibly do? I'm working with these criminals and these convicts all the time. And one day, I think it was during his lunch, lunch hour or something during some break, he had been trained just how to share his story. And he thought, there's this guy sitting there alone. I'm just going to go try. For the first time in his life, he shared the gospel with somebody. And he said it went terribly. The guy wasn't really interested (laughs) (laughs) and didn't respond. But he said he felt so much joy and excitement that we're not really going after the result. Only God can change the heart of somebody. But he said that gave him this excitement and the burden was growing in his heart to share his faith. And over time, that began to become a normal part of his life. It was part of his lifestyle of intentionally sharing his faith. And over time, he was able to lead many, many people to Christ. He was able to start a little church in the jail And as people would go out from the jail, they were able to go out and make disciples and plant more churches. So I think the thing that sticks out to me is God's not calling us to change the world. That's his job. God's calling us to be faithful with what he has given us. And he's given us each a story that nobody can take away. And we know even according to Jesus's words, we are sent out like sheep among wolves. And our only hope is Jesus. We're not going to convince anybody of anything. Unless the Father is drawing them to the Son, we have no chance. But we know also that God is always at work. And we know the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And we have a great opportunity to share what God has given us with other people. So when average people do that, 
a not average God can do incredible things. So that's one story that sticks out to me. Yeah. And that's so true, you know, for us too. I think it's easy to get in your head about sharing your faith. And exactly what you said is so true that we are just called to be stewards of whatever God has given us, whatever he has placed in front of us and the results and whatever happens with that is up to him. He obviously can do whatever he wants with that. And I think the impact on our own faith by stepping out into that is dramatic. Like it was for this man's life and how it strengthened his faith by inviting others into that. And so obviously that's a huge part of what you guys do on a daily basis, but such a simple but profound fact that I think is easy to forget. I know that you guys work across many cultures and I'm curious for what aspects of training and of that process translate really across any culture and what modifications have to be made to kind of customize for a specific people group who are coming from a totally different place or if really not much customization is required at all. Yeah, that's a great question. The advantage when you're working with indigenous people is they're able to cross a lot of the cultural and contextualization barriers that an outsider would struggle with. So we focus primarily on key principles and best practices and training through scripture with high levels of accountability and high levels of intentionality. So we're focused on faithfulness. So we would define faithfulness like a three-legged stool of knowing and doing and training others to do the same. So the results are in God's hand. The fruitfulness is in God's hand. The faithfulness is up to us. That's our response. So I think when we do training, obviously we like to train in the local language, and that's why we translate everything we do into the local language. And all of our materials and our methodology are developed across our global leadership team. So we have Africans, Asians, and Americans as part of our content development. We have cultural orientations that are guilt and righteous-based, fear and power-based, honor-shame-based. We have field practitioners. We have theologians, all intermixed. It's a beautiful mess of perspectives and insights And we're not really looking for good ideas. We're looking for best practices. So what's working? What is God doing? How is God working? How do we see that played out in the training that we're doing? How do we see that played out in the other movements and the other things that are happening in the missions world? How can we shake that all up into a beautiful cocktail and try to deliver that as simply as possible and then rely on the local leaders to be able to cross any sort of contextualization issues that they see. So if they're dealing with a Buddhist context, they may go about it differently than a Muslim or a Hindu context. But since they're local people and they know the context of their situation, those barriers are much less difficult to overcome. Jared, you've said a few times during this conversation about how we have a calling to be part of the Great Commission, and that applies to all Christians, I think, 
but it doesn't look the same for everybody. There are certainly people on the ground doing the teaching, the training in cultures, countries all over the world. But there's a variety of different roles that help that come together. And one important role is helping to fund this work. And that can come in all different forms as well. But could you share a little bit more about what it actually costs to go into a place, a village, and plant a church, just so we can wrap our heads around that piece of the puzzle? Yeah, we say every believer is called to be a disciple. Every disciple is called to be a disciple maker. That's the end of the story right there. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a clear calling on your life. And that is to be a disciple-making disciple. Now, whether that leads to you being a church planter or a pastor or a missionary, that's between you and God and the calling that He has on you. But we know for sure we're all called to be part of fulfilling the Great Commission. That's what Jesus left us behind to do. And we got to go after every people in every place until it's done or until He returns, one of the two. So I think in terms of the funding element in participating and helping to add fuel to the fire of the Great Commission to the ends of the earth for the majority of us who maybe aren't called to move overseas or to go to a certain place. I think there's great opportunities today. And I know for our ministry, we're very big in mobilizing the indigenous church We're very big on mobilizing local believers to be disciples and make disciples. And also, every disciple's home has the potential to be a church, at least the start of a church. And when you plant churches without buildings and without salaries, it really expands the ability to scale things. So if you can start a church in a house and mobilize believers you can grow things very quickly at very low cost. So I think our average cost per church over the last 10 years or so is around $400. So it's not an exact science. We're not making widgets where you put money in and automatically things come out. But when you look back on the year and you think about how much money we spent and how many churches that we were able to plant our average over the last 10 years or so is right at $400 per church. Yeah. And I know when we talked to David Johnson from Dulas Partners, TTI is one of the four or five ministries that they support. And I know that they've screened well over 3000 ministries out there for effectiveness and accountability and all the pillars of what you guys do. And so it says a lot to really how effective the TTI model is in multiplication to, you know, be one of those few that made it through that screening. And one theme that we've heard countless times on the podcast in the missions world is the importance of partnership. And I know TTI is an integral part of that. Can you tell us a little bit about how you have seen God work through strategic partnership through TTI and through other ministries you have interacted with? Yeah. So, It's very clear there's no one ministry that's going to figure it out and fulfill the Great Commission. It's going to take all of us at some level. So I think we've learned through trial and error that we don't have to have the answer to every question. 
we don't have to have the strategy that solves every problem in the world because there are so many different facets to the Great Commission. There are so many different ways that God has called and equipped and gifted ministries and churches and individuals to be part of His family. So I think what we have learned very quickly from others is we're maybe a freckle on the body of Christ. We're not the whole thing. We may be on the pinky toe for all we know. (laughs) But Jesus said the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. And according to Jesus's words, John the Baptist was one of the best preachers he knew. So if the least in the kingdom can be greater than the best person Jesus knew, that's pretty good. We'll take that. So I think we've learned so much from other people, whether it's in partnership or just in relationship, that we're better together. People have different experiences. People have tried and failed and tried and failed. And we don't have to learn everything by trial and error. We can learn from the mistakes and the experiences of other people. So I think that's been a high priority and a high value of us as a ministry to be intentional to ask questions. And some people say we have the spiritual gift of curiosity. And what that really means is why do you do what you do and what makes it work? If we can understand that and apply it to our own context, we're going to be so much better. We're going to make tons of mistakes. We don't have to make the same mistakes as other people. That's kind of our attitude. Jared, how can you tell that you've been successful in your efforts? You can take one specific village, for an example. If you enter that village through introduction or strategically chose a place where you'd like to plant a church, how long does that engagement last for? And how can you tell that it's working? Yeah, we have three goals. Disciples making disciples, churches planting churches, leaders developing leaders. And as we're making disciples, we target the least reached, the unreached. As we're planting churches, we're looking for the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the trafficked, the injustice. And as we're developing leaders, we want to see it done in a way that's sustainable and in a way that's going to continue to reproduce and multiply. So the barometer for success for us is very easy. Are there disciples that are making disciples? Is there a church that is effectively equipping and developing leaders for the next generation? And are they beginning to think about reproduction and multiplication? So if those things are happening, and then we also are engaging the lost, the church is being intentional to have an impact in the community, a transformational impact, targeting the least, targeting the vulnerable, the injustice, be in the hands and feet of Christ, practically. So how that looks from village to village, from context to context is different, but those are the key measurables we would be focused on. So I wanted to pivot for a minute. I know you're also involved in the Coalition of the Willing, which we've heard a couple times mentioned on the podcast as well. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how that came together and what the purpose of the coalition is. So Coalition of the Willing is a group of 
ministries who have kind of banded together, primarily focused on disciple making and church planting. And what we found is the body of Christ and the missions world in particular is a bit guilty of the right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing. I'm sure you guys are not guilty of that, but I know <laughs> I know we have been. And a lot of the missions world has made a lot of the different ministries and organizations and churches tend to make their plans, tend to put their strategies together in isolation. And if you look at the missions world as a whole, I think about 42% of the world is considered unreached, three plus billion people. And to engage those people, they receive about, I think it's 1% of the mission's dollars and 3% of the mission force. You guys know the stats. So that tells you that there's a gap from what we know to what we're actually doing. And unfortunately, the environment lends itself to winning the winnable and ignoring the rest. So you have many places and many pockets in the world where the church is very effective. And then you have many places and many peoples where the church is largely absent or non-existent. For whatever the reason may be, there are legitimate reasons as to why that happens. But the Coalition of the Willing came about in the context of that type of conversation where the desire to know where are the gaps, who are the people, and where are the places where the gospel has yet to go. And how do we collaborate? How do we coalesce around that information? It's extremely difficult to find. And finishing the task and the idea of having unengaged, unreached people group lists has been very helpful for the body of Christ to wrap their mind around peoples and unreached people groups. That's a common term today. I think most of the listeners would be familiar. And when we talk about the nations in scripture, it's talking about peoples, mostly people groups. And one of the gaps in the people group strategy that has come to light is the place. So while overwhelmingly most of the unengaged, unreached people groups have been engaged, a lot of the places in the world still lack any Christian presence. So the million dollar question for the Great Commission is, where are the gaps and who's going after them? So the coalition is focused on trying to find on a global scale down to the village level, where are the places and who are the people who have no Christians and no churches? And with that information, how can we as the body of Christ together coordinate our efforts about going after them? So getting the gospel to every people in every place is now a practical reality because we know where all the people are in the world and where they live. So there's 4.6 million populated places in the world today, places that people live 
and we know where each one of them are on the map. So the coalition is a group of ministries who have said, we're going to share our information together about what we know about where the church is and where the church isn't. And we're going to gather together on a regular basis to inform our strategy based on the reality of the Great Commission in basically two key questions. Is there a church there? Are there Christians there? Yes or no? And not duplicate efforts, not go after the same places, not go after the easy places, but also not go after the same places. So a lot of times that's happening. So the groups of ministries who have banded together have said, we're going to figure out how to share our information of where we're planting churches, where we're working, and coordinate our efforts around what the larger body of Christ is doing in the same areas so that we can go after some level of a saturation strategy for every people in every place reach with the gospel. Jared, that's really helpful explanation. I think there can sometimes be a tendency to focus on results and efficiency, but just like you said, that can sometimes leave out people who are very much in need, but there might be some obstacles, whether it be political or otherwise, that just prevent easy access to a people group to share the gospel and to have the body of Christ come together, work together, collaborate to share resources, share information, work together and come up with a game plan. It's an incredible picture of this mobilization effort toward that end of reaching unreached, unengaged people. Because if we were all competing for the same resources and results is the only way that you're going to appeal to donors, then it's going to actually prevent us from moving towards the actual end goal as quickly as we might if we were working together. So I really appreciate the way you laid that out. I think the diversity of the body of Christ actually makes it stronger and more able to work towards this end of completing the Great Commission, whatever that looks like, because we all are not working towards the exact same thing in the same way. So what do you see over the next five to 10 years for TTI and Coalition of the Willing? Yeah, well, the goal is going after every people, every place. Inside the Timothy Initiative, we call it Achieve, a church in every village everywhere. That's our acronym. That's our battle cry. We want to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth, but also do it in a tangible and measurable way. So it's very easy to say we want to reach every people in every place. But also to have a strategy to do that, we now have the technology, we now have the research, we now have the data to be able to measure the progress of the spread of the Great Commission. So our primary focus as a ministry is to go after nationwide saturation strategies that ultimately end with a church in every village. And our participation with the larger body of Christ and the coalition is to be able to say that that's happening in every country of the world. So our own ministry, TTI, doesn't have to be in every country in order to fulfill the Great Commission. We're part of the effort, but there's many other efforts. There's many other ministries and churches and organizations and denominations that God has placed the vision of getting to every people in every place 
in their heart and on their mind. So I think our main effort is to do what God has called us to do and to do our best to do that well with others, to prioritize collaboration, to prioritize partnerships, and to understand that the key to reaching the world is not one ministry, it's Jesus. And everybody pointing to Jesus is the way we're going to get there. So I think that's our main focus. So over the next five years, we want to continue to be part of efforts that are going after every people in every place. There's different countries where there's different plans that are being developed. We're a part of some. We're cheering on others, but that's where we're going to be. Anything that has to do with reaching the unreached, the least reached, the unreached peoples, the unreached places, that's where you're going to find us. Since the formation of the coalition, have you been able to see how much progress has been made as a result of that information sharing? Like, has that really dramatically changed the strategy of either TTI or many other ministries? And what's kind of the pace at this point? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I mentioned before kind of the winning the winnable and ignoring the rest mentality. It's not a strategy. It's a gravitational pull that tends to happen. And I think for most of the missions world, we've been intentional over the last 10 years to think about people groups and think about engaging unreached peoples. But largely, the place component has been missing. And as a result, we've measured the number of people groups that we're working among, particularly unreached people groups. But we haven't necessarily thought through the saturation component of where are we working? Where are these people living? And as the people group gets mixed up more and more, as more people mix, the complexities of peoples is exponentially greater than it used to be especially as people move in more urban settings, people groups are less and less clearly defined. And the importance of place is increasing more and more each day. So I think what we have seen internally and what we have seen externally with other ministries is most of us are not set up. Most of us have not thought through how do we capture where we're reaching people, where we're planting churches. How do we capture that information in a usable way that can inform strategy? So we're all good at counting the number of churches we planted. We just can't tell you where they are. And what happens is they tend to be centered around pockets of Christians. And what is happening is there's a bunch of gaps that remain So even though you may be planting large number of churches, there's still major gaps in a geographic region. Even though you may be reaching particular unreached people groups, you're still missing large portions of them in the different places that they live. So being able to have the capacity and the ability to map where the church is and where the church isn't, and then see where you're planting churches in relation to that what we're seeing is overwhelmingly churches are being planted among 
villages and places where there's already Christians and there's already churches, which makes sense. And at a much lower rate, churches are being planted where there are no Christians and where there are no churches, which also makes sense. But that's the greatest need. That's the area that is least likely to have access to the gospel. So I think the big shift in the missions world is the people and place strategy and thinking through places that people live, places where there are no Christians and there's no churches. So one example for you, one of the efforts in the coalition in a country in South Asia, I won't say the name, but there's about 85,000 villages. And over the last year, a survey has been done down to the village level. And there are over 70,000 villages with no Christians and no church. But every UEPG has been engaged. So it tells you the massive amount of gaps that remain even among the importance of engaging the unengaged and the unreached. So it's illuminating, but it's also very informative to the larger body of Christ working in that country. There's a massive amount of places and peoples that have no access to the gospel. And for the first time, we have the ability to strategize where we're going together. So in a coordinated effort, we can go after planting churches among the villages and the places that have no Christians and have no churches without stepping on each other's toes, without duplicating efforts. So it's a big shift in the missions world that we're just now experiencing. And it's really exciting to be a part of it. Based on the level of coordination between ministries now and data sharing, do you think that it's possible to reach all of those identified locations throughout the world in the next 10, 20, 30 years with the, yeah, you know, the pace definitely. of things. Yeah. The information is there. I mean, there's the ability to know where all the populated places are in the world today. It's around 4.6 million places based on government data, census data, and also satellite data. You can identify where people are living. So obviously there's always going to be those people in the bush and in the forest and the nomads that are traveling at night, and they're hard to pin down. But overwhelmingly, we have the ability to say where everybody is in the world today. And in and among the efforts of the larger body of Christ, we have the ability to crowdsource the information of where the church is and where the church isn't. And if we're intentional, if we can figure out how to work together, we can very much go after every people and every place with the gospel. So it's doable. I don't think Jesus would have given us a task that can't be done, right? Obviously, we need him with us, and he promised he would be in Matthew 28. But Jesus didn't tell us something that's impossible to do. I don't think he would do that to us. So obviously, it's not going to be one ministry. It's not going to be one effort, but there's one church, there's one body, and Jesus has empowered and entrusted us to go after it with everything we've got. So let's go for it. Amen to that. You know, we just had 
Jim Wise on recently talking about the exact other half of that equation that the financial resources to mobilize that effort that's already going on already exists just within the U.S. today, let alone the rest of the world of Christians. And, you know, talking about the great wealth transfer of literally trillions of dollars passing generations over the next 10, 20 years. And so it's going to be unbelievable to watch God work with the enormous mobilization that is going on in both the generosity world that he is raising up resources and in the missions world as he is bringing together collaboration, which you guys are right at the center of bringing together the information, like you said, as such a critical component. And it's incredible that we get to, you know, live in this time and watch God pull all of these pieces together, which he has obviously been building over centuries, but we just are in such a unique time now where the technology and the resources and the collaboration is just at a level that was never before seen. So it's going to be an incredible thing to watch and to be a part of. Amen to that. Well, as we get to the end of the episode here, I wanted to leave some time for our manager's minute. We like to end every episode with one practical action our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and manage God's wealth wisely. So, Jared, do you have a suggestion for our listeners today? Yeah, I do. Actually, we have what we call the church planter's circle. And that's a group of people who are not the major mega wealthy donors. They're the average people like you and me in for, I think, $34 a month. So that's just over a dollar a day. You can be part of a group of people who are seeing at least one church planted every year. So I think every listener can be part of planting a church, one church a year at least, if not more. It's a very practical, tangible, bite-sized chunk that everybody can be a part of. So I would encourage anybody that wants to be part of planting the church among the least reached and the unreached around the world to be part of the church planner circle. And you can find that on our website. Yeah. And where can people find you guys online or find out more information if they want to read more about TTI? It's ttionline.org. That's the easy way to find us. All right. And I encourage everybody to go check that out. Jared, thanks so much for sharing your time with us today. This has just been an incredible conversation. And like I said, I'm really excited to see what God has in store for TTI, for the Coalition of the Willing, and for the global church. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't have to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at Finish Line Pledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 63. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time. 